0: People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have a full show today. We have three authors coming in for for two interviews in one hour. And to start off with, I can't think of a bigger interview we had this year. And we've had quite a lot of big interviews. We have Kate Moss in the studio. She is... I'm going to ask her to introduce herself, but (laughs) after the introduction, we're going to go through a number of unbelievable achievements that one person has achieved, and then we're going to discuss her new book, The Burning Chambers, which has been launched in Joburg currently, and Kate is in South Africa from... Britain for the launch of the book and for a number of book festivals welcome to our shores
1: thank you and this is my very first interview so it's such a pleasure and an honor to be here
0: well it's a great honor for us to have you in before we get through all the different stages of your <laughs> very very last I'm much career, older than I look you see that's the thing. <laughs> can you introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms
1: Um, My name is Kate Moss. I'm a novelist, a playwright, um, and a supporter of other writers as well. And I started in publishing, and then I fell into writing. And all I wanted to do when I was growing up was find a way to be a reader for a living. And I've just about managed that now.
0: You are so accomplished in so many fields, besides being a best-selling, well-received author, because that's two separate things. You are both. I'd like to discuss a few of your other achievements. You have a career, firstly, in publishing. You worked at Holler & Stoughton, then at Century and at Hutchinson.
1: Yes, and it was, people often say to writers, you know, did you always know you wanted to write? And actually, when I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be a musician, And I had wonderful parents and they were really supportive and I played the violin and the piano and, you know, and, and, and a household with books and all of these things. Um, and just at the last moment, I realized and I got a place at music school that I wasn't good enough. And it was the best thing that ever happened because I would just have been in an orchestra and that would probably not have suited me. Um, And instead I went and read English at university instead. And that was the moment at which I just thought, I know I want to be around books. This is what I want to do. So when I left, like many girls of my age and type... uh, you know went into london and i was a secretary and i started as a secretary and i worked my way up from the bottom and that was a brilliant thing to do because i was around writers all the time and i learned one thing that writers come in all shapes and sizes they're all colors they're all um you know widenesses and tallnesses and some are men and some are women and people write about different things but the only thing that matters is that you love it and if you love it then you'll write a book that readers might love. And I didn't realise I was learning how to be a writer then, but I was all that time.
0: Then from publishing, you went into broadcast and interviewing. And can you tell us which media outlets you work for and what did you cover?
1: Well, I'm I'm a really you know, I'm a fly by night. I'm not a proper <laughs> broadcaster. It's just that when someone says, "Do you want to come and have a go at doing this?" I always think, "Yes, let's go and have a go and try." Um, and if you can't do it, do something else. So nowadays, what I do is I do a lot of interviewing of other creative people, as it were. So I run an interview programme at my local theatre, at a Festival Theatre. I do a lot of interviews for the National Theatre of Great Britain. And that's interviewing directors and lighting designers and artists and actors um, and fellow writers, playwrights as well. And I suppose because I am one, I'm just and I'm nosy, I'm really nosy. So I just go, how did you do that? How did you make that work? Um, so I do all of that. And I also I do I, I do things for the BBC. And that, again, is mostly interviewing other writers um, or um, what I suppose you could say honoring Other people, So I make documentaries. So I've just made a documentary on a a wonderful uh, writer called Helen Waddell who wrote quite religious work novels um, in between the wars, the first and the second world war. And she's been completely forgotten or on Mary Shelley. So it's all of the giant footsteps. I walk in as a woman who is a novelist. I make programs on those women in whose debt I am, I suppose.
0: And now we've got you on the other side of the marketplace (laughs) being interviewed. You're also an accomplished playwright and you're on the board of the National Theatre in London.
1: Yes, that, that is a real privilege and a, a, a great, great honour. Um, they All theatre boards do try to have uh, non-playwrights on the board, as it were. So I'm kind of there as the arty voice, but being uh, a novelist and a non-fiction writer. And my other great love is theatre. And whenever I've got a free evening, I'll go to the theatre, I'll try and do that. And so... I think it's – I was brought up like this by my parents, that you give – time in a voluntary way you know you do other stuff and so when I was asked to be on the board I thought well this will be great it will be a huge time commitment but it will be wonderful and the thing that is such a privilege is it means that you see every single play and you learn about writing from all sorts of communities from different parts of the world you know so we're about to launch an amazing new play about the Lehman Brothers and the passage of that one family um, into America and everything that came out of it and because I write about family and I'm interested in faith and systems of faith it's that sort of thing that gives me so much pleasure to serve on the national theater board is that you start to hear all the stories from all over the world from communities that you would never come from but they're suddenly there they are in front of you and that moment when the lights go down and you know you have that shiver and you know you're going to be in the presence of some wonderful acting and some wonderful storytelling so it's just what i do for myself on the page i like watching
0: other people do it on the stage and you also have a family connection into the acting world
1: well I <laughs> well I have two in a way, really weird way in the um my lovely lovely father who died in 2011 and is still very much missed he um was in the army during the war the First, uh, second world war and when he came out he wanted to be an actor and he wrote some slightly ropey plays I've got to say and he shared a flat with two actors one was Denham Elliot and one was Peter Finch and he realised very early on that Peter Finch was better looking and Denham Elliott was a better actor so he gave up and became a solicitor instead um, but he loved the theatre and he was involved and my son is now an actor um, and he's just come back, he's 25 now um, and he's just been playing Brad in Rocky Horror and before that he was playing Marius in Les Mis um, and he's just about to start his new job and that is wonderful. My daughter's in art and I love the fact that I would have supported whatever they did. If there'd been sports people, I would have stood on that touchline in the rain and the snow with my husband and we would have cheered. But thank goodness they went into theatre and art galleries. So we're always inside supporting them.
0: Then... I don't know when you find extra, you know, free time to do all of this because we haven't finished your list of accomplishments. I know. <laughs> You're also a co-founder of the Women's Prize for Fiction, which has been known as the Orange and then the Bailey's Award. Now it's known just as the Women's Prize for Fiction. Why did you push to start this award? and what has its impact been
1: yes thank you it's um it's one of the things i you know i i get a lot of credit for this but there were lots of women and men involved in setting up the prize and i think it's the the, the same uh reason as many of us are involved in things that are specific to our communities or our interests which is that even though we are in 2018 we know that often the st- the same stories get told over and over again. And they are often the stories of the wealthier white men writing the books, running the history books, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And we know, you know, this old cliche of history is written by the victors, but it's also written by a very narrow band of people. And with the Women's Prize, we just realised that although the majority of books being published in the UK were by women and the majority, vast majority of novels being bought were by women, that actually uh women appeared only about 9% on literary prize shortlists so there was just something really weird about the honoring of work and it's not only women's work i would say it's absolutely uh b a m e work as we call it in in the uk voices from other cultures absolutely fa- faith writing whether it's jewish writing whether it's um hindu writing all of these things and many uh novelists from all over the world simply were never given the honoring that they they needed and so we as readers are the poorer for that because we're not hearing everybody's voices so you know our winner last year was Naomi Alderman for the power um, and I remember she was shortlisted for her very first novel Disobedience which was set in a a very traditional Jewish community in North London and I remember talking to her right at the beginning and her saying the thing is that nobody wants to hear the stories I want to write and I said but this is why this prize exists to get all the stories out there, and then readers just have a bigger world to play
0: in. I watch all the awards, but the, uh, the, the Women's Prize for Fiction is one of the ones that I do watch, and I try to make sure that some of the books on that short, the long list and then the short list, have been featured here on the radio oh, show. thank you, thank so you. We do thank you for Good. creating another channel to bring these voices to, to, Ex- to, 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 to our radars. Exactly. We haven't even finished the accomplishments no, of Kate. Uh, no, let's do no more. Kate Moss. You sound
1: like my mum. I don't.
0: <laughs> we'll be back with more conversation with Kate Moss right after this ad break. People of the book on 101.9 High fm Yeah. Back in conversation with Kate Moss, this is, as I've been saying, this is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us to bring someone who wears so many hats, holds so many pens, and to (laughs) share this life and to share the writing of Kate Moss with our listeners. The the last two things I just wanted to mention is that you received an OBE, an Order of the British Empire, for your services in culture to to the to the English speaking world. I'd say not just to Britain, and then your books, your most famous books, have been Labyrinth, which has been made into a TV a TV series, Sepulchre, and then Citadel. Uh, we're going to talk about those because I think a lot of people have read them and your your fan base in South Africa is built on the the, the reputation of those books and then some of your short story collections as well. But you here in South Africa – for a number of literary festivals and for the launch of your brand new book, The Burning Chambers. I read the book and it really took me just a few days. Thank you. <laughs> I actually, I call it a black hole of a read because it sucked <laughs> me in with a gravitational pull on my time and my, my energies. And this is the first in a projected quartet of books. Yeah. The book starts in France in 1862 what inspired that prologue?
1: Well, thank you for that really lovely introduction to all of that. Um, and actually, The Burning Chambers feels just like Labyrinth. It's if you're lucky in your career as a writer, you have a book that really just you, you feel almost nervous all the time you're thinking about it. And I had that with Labyrinth and I didn't expect it to happen again later in my career. And it's happened with The Burning Chambers. And that's partly because I had to stop being a writer full time because I was caring for my parents. Um, And they're both gone now, which is very sad. But my mother-in-law still is with me and lives with us as well. We all live together. And so I had this period of reflection and I had time to really let a story take root and do research. So The Burning Chambers absolutely started because I was in South Africa. Um, and I was here filming Labyrinth. We filmed a lot of Labyrinth in South Africa um, at the South African Film Studios outside Cape Town. And then I went to a book festival in Franschhoek. And as I was driven into the town, I saw a sign at the side of the road that said Dock*. And it's spelt with a Q, not a G, when I saw it. But I thought, that's strange. This is the area that all my historical fiction is inspired by, the southwest of France, a region called Languedoc, where Carcassonne is. And I write all of that. All of my books were a love letter to Carcassonne in that part of France. And then I saw that all the restaurants in the street had got French names. Um, and I thought, this is really strange. And then I saw the street was called Huguenot Street. And so then I thought I'd better ask someone, and I said, um, "You know, what 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 is what is the history of of here?" And and they looked at me and said, "Don't you know that the word word 'Franche' comes from French corner?" And at this point, I had you know that trickle down my spine. I oh no! So I went to the uh, museum, Huguenot Museum, at the end of the street, and I went in, and I walked around. It's a beautiful museum. Uh, sort of commemorating and honouring the Huguenots who fled persecution, religious persecution in Europe and came to, as it was then, Cape, which had been colonised, obviously stolen, um, by the Dutch and the Dutch East India Company. And at the room at the back, uh, there was a painted board of people who sailed, French families who sailed from um, Amsterdam and The Hague um, after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685. And there on that list was the name of a family that i had written about in labyrinth and at that moment i thought no kate don't do this you know nothing about this part of Africa, this part of the world at all. You know nothing about this period of history. You know, walk away, walk away from this. But it wouldn't let me go. Um, and then I, I, you know, I started to research and discovered that there had been an understanding from the Dutch East India Company who were shipping people and um, provisions all the way down via the Cape of Good Hope, as it was then, and onto Batavia, where their main uh, trading was uh, based. And they had realised that the land in the Cape was similar to the land in southwest France. And maybe if they found some French winemakers, they could persuade them to come out to the Cape and start planting vines. And that's where it started. And so at that moment, I thought, I'm going to have to write this story and it just took shape. It's a Romeo and Juliet story, 300 years of history, a Catholic family, a Protestant family, um, a missing will, a legacy, the sins of the fathers being visited on the children and over and over. But most of all, it is a diaspora story and it's about what it means to be a refugee and to have everything that you know taken away from you for no fault of your own. And this is a universal story. I'm writing about the Huguenots of France. I could be writing about now. I could be about writing about the Jewish diaspora, certainly the J- Jewish people in France as well. I could be writing about any number of people, um, you know, who have, because of decisions made in political terms, it's never about faith. It's always about victimizing another group of people for power. And I did have at back of my mind, what would it have been for the children of my people in the burning chambers to have arrived in the Cape 300 years after the story starts, their descendants, and you carry your home with you. You carry your home in your heart and your family sing about the places that they've been forced to leave and you always have a little bit of Longadock, a little bit of Carcassonne in your heart. But what if by luck you arrived in South Africa, which of course wasn't South Africa then in the same way, and you found that the land there looked like the land that your parents and your grandparents and your great-great-grandparents had told you about. And so the idea of most refugee stories are awful stories. We know this. But sometimes maybe you can make a new home. And so I started to have this great um, sense of the the history. And I'm an outsider in South Africa. I I knew nothing about it. So I could stand in Franschhoek and think... What would they have felt, like me, complete outsider, know nothing, to stand here? And you look up at those amazing Frenchic Mountains and the incredible land and think, oh, this does look like the Garrigue outside Carcassonne. This does look like Toulouse. This, you could pick up the earth and its different colour. But there's something about it that speaks of home. So... That's why it's now four books, because the more I research, the more the bigger the story got. And, um, you know, my lead character, Minou, she's a Catholic girl in Carcassonne. And when the story starts, she doesn't know her world is about to be taken from her, because the wars of religion will start on the 1st of March, 1562. And the girl that we meet in the graveyard right at the beginning of the book in Franschhoek in 1862, by the end of the book, a reader will think, oh, I, oh, I think I know who's... You know which family she's going to come from. Um, it's a big old project. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen to everybody yet, or how I'm going to get there. But I will get back to Franchuk.
0: But have you <laughs> already planned the, what's going to happen in the four books? Do you have an outline?
1: No. Um, what? <laughs> no. Sadly, no. The way I work is I research the real history. Um, I write imaginary people against the backdrop of real history. So I'm not writing a history of the wars of religion in France, which started in March, 1562 and came to a a desperate, exhausted end um, in April, uh, 1598, when the great French King Henri of uh, Navarre, Henri IV signed the Edict of Nantes, which gave religious toleration, which was broader than just the Huguenots, actually. And he was a great king. Um, so, I know that history. I know then the revocation. I know the diaspora. I know that millions of people were slaughtered in these religious wars. I know that all religious wars in the end are the same. Uh, oddly, they're people with power picking, saying, You are the enemy. And now the people who were your neighbours, you must renounce them or we will take you too. And the pattern, sadly, are, it never changes. Humankind never learns that loving difference is the way to make a healthy, happy world, you know, this sort of thing. But I do therefore know the history. And I know my characters. And I know their children and their children's children. And so I need to discover the story as I go along, because they're big books. And this is big project. And if I knew everything, I would lose my enthusiasm. So I need to discover it like the reader does, as I write, but I know we end up in French the last book is all set in Southern Africa.
0: Okay, we are in conversation with Kate Moss. The book is The Burning Chambers. It's been launched in South Africa and it was inspired by a trip to South Africa. We'll be back shortly after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in conversation with Kate Moss, the best-selling British author, OBE, co-founder of the Women's Prize for Fiction, And we're discussing the book, The Burning Chambers, which was inspired by a visit to Franschhoek in the Cape. I'd like to ask you after, (laughs) just (laughs) wait for the next one to come out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. The the,
0: the basic outline, just to whet our listeners' appetite, without giving too much away, the basic outline of The Burning Chambers.
1: Um, The... Outline. I mean, the novel starts on the last day of February, 1562, where a young girl uh, leaves her home in the medieval city of Carcassonne and goes across the bridge to the modern town, which is 14th century <laughs> bastide walled town, to open up her father's bookshop. And as your listeners know, all the best stories start in a bookshop. It's all about the books, really. And I wanted that because at that time, so many of the looted uh, manuscripts and texts from uh britain that you know was england at the time uh from the dissolution of the monasteries had found their way into europe so book selling was suddenly becoming a thing you know on every street there would be booksellers so i love the idea that we're right at the beginning of what we all love now and she she knows something's wrong with her father he's come back from a trip earlier in the year and he's not himself doesn't even go to mass anymore but she doesn't know what and she's not worried her world is fine happy She loves her family. Her mother has died, but she's got siblings and it's all good. And that was my starting point, the idea that the next day, hundreds of miles away, there will be a massacre of unarmed men, women and children at prayer in their temple, their Huguenot temple in a place called Vassy in northern France. And because of that, her world is about to be torn apart. But when we meet Minou, my lovely, lovely Minou, she doesn't know. And so that turning point in history where and I write about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. So as she goes along her street that morning, the last morning that it will be normal. She says hello to her Catholic neighbors. She says hello to her converso neighbors, because there are many Jewish refugees in Carcassonne fleeing the persecution, being forced to convert, but have fled into uh, Carcassonne. And the spirit of the Cathars, the idea of religious tolerance, is very strong in the southwest, much stronger than it is in the north of France. So it's a community of Jewish people, Moors, Protestants, Catholics, neighbors. We know that soon they will not allow to be neighbors. We know that there will be the boots at the door and the... Tell me where the Huguenots have gone. Where are you hiding them? All of these things. And, of course, the Jewish refugees have been through this all before. They've seen it before. And when the story starts, though, Minu is just an innocent girl. And the thing that will happen that day is that she will meet, by accident, a Huguenot boy. And... Will they get together? Well, you'll have to read the book to find out. Um, but that, So it's, it's, on the one hand, a love story. It's a feud between two families. It's an inheritance. And the thing that Minou has, there is a letter put under the door in that bookshop. And it's addressed to her by her given name, which nobody uses. She's known as Minou. Nobody calls her Marguerite Schubert. And when she opens it, all it says is, she knows that you live. And when I wrote those words, I thought... Who is she? I didn't even know who she was. So it is, you know, it's, it's a sort of stalking novel almost. It is about religious intolerance. It's about the consequences of faith being used for bad rather than good. And this comes from my own background in that, you know, my aunt... Um, was one of the founders for the movement of the ordination of women in the Anglican church in, in Britain. Uh, she's sadly now gone. My, aunt, uh, my godmother, who died last year, was an Anglican nun. She was 104. My grandfather was um, a vicar. Um, my, it, so I grew up in a gentle faith environment, which was we went to church on Sundays. Nobody talked about it. Nobody made a thing about it. And it wasn't a cause for dissent. Um, and so for me, all of these things come to it. But in the end, it is a love story. It's a love story. And it's a story about how ordinary people, the courage of ordinary people trying to stand up against oppression and intolerance. Um, and it's an adventure so it's pretty fast moving as you know because you've read it and the one thing I did have I did have that fight those final scenes in the castle in the mountains I always had those in my mind I just didn't know who would be there to tell the story for me
0: you mentioned earlier on that your fir- your, your your previous books were a love letter to this south this area in the southwest yeah. of France the languedoc wow why? why did you fall in how did you fall in love with this place
1: um i I fell in love. I I was just really lucky, really lucky. My husband and I bought by a a series of daft coincidences um, a tiny house in the shadow of the medieval city wall of Carcassonne. Um, And I went there for the first time in 1989 And I was pregnant with my daughter um, and had never been there. So I hadn't been there to buy the house. And we walked through the town. It's a beautiful uh, grey stone walled town in the southwest of France where the setting sun turns the walls this beautiful kind of apricot color. And you can see the Pyrenees in the spring and the autumn. 30 kilometers away, covered in snow, but you'll be standing in the sun like, like today's Johannesburg sun. It's beautiful sun on your face. And it's a place that changes with the season. So with the cherry blossom, with the apples, with the sunflowers, with the lavender, with the vines. There are rows of vines everywhere, legacy of the Roman um, occupation. And... As we walked through the town, it was misty and dark and cold and nobody was about, because that's what happens in France, out of season. And we walked across the Pont Vieux, the old bridge, which is across the river that separates the two halves of the medieval and the more modern Bastide. And then I saw a head on the hill, what looked like a crown of stone, uh, rings of turrets and towers, um, two sets of walls, the lights on there, the stone and it is a medieval fortress castle and that was it it was a coup de foudre I just fell completely in love and over the next few years and my daughter was born and then my son was born and we spent half the year there when they were little and I started to learn about the history of the Cathars um, who were a group of heretical Christians who were who lived and died and suffered in that region and again exactly the same has happened with the burning chambers that sense of learning about the history, being in the landscape, you start to hear the whispers of stories in the landscape. Not real people, but people who could have lived. And it's like, for me, it's always like a tapping on my shoulder. So that love letter started with Labyrinth and my heroine, Alaïs, and with The Burning Chambers now, it's Minou, and it's exactly the same thing of standing there in Carcassonne with the voices of the past all around me and thinking... I'm not a historian, but I am a storyteller. And, you know, it's like what I feel I'm saying to my readers is just come closer and I'll tell you a story about a girl and her love. And that's really what it is. And for me, the most important thing, I suppose, is also that I'm putting the stories of women on the page. Um, and normal people all the people who are left out of history but particularly the women's stories on the page the women of great courage who they're the ones that are actually manning as it were the barricades and are doing all of these things and they're quite often the ones that keep the families going in these terrible circumstances and um carcassonne is just whenever i go back there i just feel like i feel i'm going oh what a relief. <laughs> what a relief to be home.
0: Has there been a big increase in tourism to Kakosan because of your books?
1: I wouldn't ever make the claim that it was because of my books, but there
0: are quite a lot of visitors to Carcassonne <laughs> boosted numbers of people well
1: yes I mean it is a very lovely thing that uh, you know we see my I was standing with my children once when Labyrinth had just come out and this uh, very lovely uh, American woman came up and she was holding a copy of Labyrinth and she was chatty and she just said oh this book is amazing you know it's really amazing uh, you should have you ever read it and I heard myself say no because <laughs> it was just too embarrassing <laughs> so <laughs>
0: I think we've got time for one more question uh, because we're going to run out of time. It's really half past. This has been an absolutely wonderful, wonderful Thank you. opportunity to share your infectious enthusiasm and your passion. How did you do all the research, libraries, archives?
1: Yeah. Um, I do two types of research um, as I think of them in my mind. I do uh, book You know, I I love when you use the people of the book. You know, I do book stuff first. I always go to books first. So absolutely, libraries, archives, museums, um, because the things that you can read about and learn in books in terms of the dates and the experiences... Again, it's always that thing that the it is written by the people in power. Uh, so we know about the edicts. We know about the court. We know about uh, the churches. We know about the temples. We know about the military campaigns. But once I've got all of that, I want to know about ordinary people's lives. What did they wear? What did they eat? Um, would they even know an edict had been passed somewhere else? Of course they wouldn't. So, um, So what I did was then I go particularly to museums, um, and find things out. So with Minu, for example, what clothes is she wearing in 1562 in uh, On the last day of February, when she goes to her father's shop, uh, is her hair covered, or is she um, wearing gloves? What sort of uh, skirt is she wearing? And if she's wearing a farthingale, which they wore in those days, people will have seen pictures of Elizabeth I with these huge skirts. She's not wearing that sort of stuff because that's Sunday best. You know, we all know about you know going to temple, to synagogue, to the mosque, to whatever on Sunday best. You know, we we all do this. But if she's going to escape from the soldiers, which she does have to. Can she run in the shoes she's wearing? Can she fit through a door in the skirt she would have been wearing? If she has her hair is covered. What will happen if she goes out uncovered? Will that draw too much? All of these things. So I do that sort of research and then I do the field research. And the field research is just walking and walking and walking and walking. And I'm writing book two now um, and they're all going to Paris. And so I've been in Paris in the last couple of weeks walking around just working out how small Paris was in 1572, which is when book two of this sequence of the burning chambers starts. So it's always that. It's always the books first the libraries and archives second the field research in the museums and then walking the streets because as much of the imagination and planning and plotting a novel happens in shoe leather as it is in a pen
0: (laughs) and you let your characters draw you along
1: yeah totally they they I've got, I've, I, all I can do is create characters. Minu, her lovely boy, Pete. My favourite characters actually Aunt not the older woman. I love writing older women I, because older women are often overlooked. But I have spent most of my adult life living in a multi-generational household. And I know that the older women know what's what. And so I always have characters like that in my books. And I've got to create them and breathe life into them. So they become three-dimensional because then they just behave like themselves. And that's how the story happens
0: it's been an absolute privilege and honor for us thank to have you. you joining us in studio thank you. thank you for writing the book thank you for Brilliant. being inspired I'm glad you liked by, it. By, by, by our local history here that's just created okay. this explosion of writing from your pen to the page uh, it's been an absolute absolute thrill reading the book and as i said readers out there it's in the shops and kate's going to be at I'm Hyde gonna, Park Exclusives.
1: Yeah, on Tuesday, um, we're launching the book, at Hyde, uh, yes, exclusive at Hyde Park, uh, which is lovely. Home from home, Hyde Park, London, Hyde Park here, uh, which will will be fantastic. And then I'm going to be at the Kingsmead Festival and the Franchot Book Festival. And I'm lucky enough to be meeting lots of booksellers um, here while I'm here as well, who are supporting all of us, all of us writers. Uh, so it's much appreciated.
0: So you can see Kate live in person. Buy yourself a copy of the book because you are going to be missing out if you don't. And if you when you do start reading it, it'll go in three days and then you'll be waiting for another two years for the next book yeah, to come May out. May twenty twenty
1: is The City of Tears. But it's
0: but it's 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 worth the read and it's definitely gonna be worth the wait. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much.